0: The first question we're dealing with today comes in actually from Twitter. Then I'm going to go to your guys' live questions in the live chat. And this comes from Jeff uh, Gatgens. I'm sorry, Jeff, if I mispronounced your last name there. He says, one of my pastors uses the Passion Translation used, the Passion Translation on Sunday. What should I do? I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt that he just doesn't know much about the Passion Translation, but I'm not happy at all that this thing, can't even call it a translation, was used in my church. What would Jesus do? Uh, Jeff, <clears throat> this this is a perfect question for today because <laughs> what I did was I put on Twitter, hey, I'll take one of the questions from below and I'm just obsessed with the Passion Translation right now. Um, not in a bad way, but because it's the focus of a project, I've, I've hired a number of scholars to review the Passion Translation. They're working on it. I just interviewed one a couple days ago, Trimper Longman, who's like the guy for the Song of Songs. He actually translated the Song of Songs for the New Living Translation and I interviewed him. And I'm going to be getting his um, interview up and ready probably Monday. You guys will see it on my channel, if not Tuesday for sure. Then there's going to be a number of other interviews coming. And those, those will all be great resources for you. You could give one of these to your pastor. He's going to see a well-known and well-respected scholar who's analyzing the Passion Translation. Now, here's what all the scholars agree on, right? Because I hired months ago a number of scholars. Here's what they all agree on. This isn't even a translation, this is, this is not a translation, and what, what you're seeing here are not secrets of Hebrew and Greek like Brian Simmons claims, but they're just Hebrew and Greek mistakes and fabrications in many cases. What, is, what does your pastor need to know? Um, well, he probably doesn't know. You said you want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think anybody using the Passion Translation on a regular basis like knows how problematic it is because why would they use it? So this is why we want to come to them with a, a gracious heart, with a, a heart that says, look, you're not the translation, right? I want to deal with the translation. The translation is all kinds of messed up, but you aren't the translation. I'm not. Deal- I'm not. I'm not going to treat you like like this, this very twisted version of God's word. I'm not going to do that to you. So I, I would say you you definitely want to offer grace to your pastor when you go talk to him. And I do think it's a good idea to talk to him about it. But generally speaking, and I talk about this occasionally when you guys talk to pastors. Um, what happens is sometimes you get you get the courage up to discuss an issue with them. You're upset about the issue enough that you were willing to talk about it, but then you haven't given maybe enough thought to how you'll approach this person, this human being, so that they can hear you when you speak to them. And that's where I think you should spend your time. You may, you know, you want to know your pastor, so you may want to approach him from the perspective of, hey, if I sit him down one on one and schedule a meeting in his office, he'll really hear me out. Or perhaps you wanna go a different direction with it and say, Hey, um, this pastor won't listen to me at all. He really only respects other certain authorities. And so I need to share the Trimper Longman interview that's coming out on Mike's channel on Monday because then he'll hear an authority talking about the problems of this translation. Or maybe, you know, your, your pastor is willing to look into it, willing to look at another one of my videos. I've linked in the description an interview I did very recently where I quoted scholarship. We talked about a whole bunch of issues and I tried to build a bridge with the charismatic community who was more likely to embrace the Passion Translation in the beginning of the interview by trying to, Make them care about whether it's factual or not. Um, So that was the attempt in that interview, and that's linked in the description below. Uh, That was on the Remnant Radio, but I also shared it on my YouTube channel. So what I'm saying is that this is you being creative. You're, You're gonna you're gonna say, Jeff, like I know my pastor. Hopefully you do. Hopefully you know him, and you know it's best to catch him at this time. It's best to approach it this way. It's best to tell him, look, I know you love the Word of God. Um, but there's something about the translation you quoted that I don't know if you're aware of. Can I share it with you? I want you to think about it. Um, you want to try to approach it in a charitable, kind fashion. And <clears throat> if it's just a one-time quote, you're you know a pastor quotes the trans- the Passion one time in a sermon. I'm not going to leave that church over that. I think that we need to have a lot of t- a lot of tolerance for different things in our fellowships if we're going to have unity. The unity involves grace. It has to have grace. But if it's like. The passion is becoming installed as the Bible of your church. I I, I would not attend that church, and that it's a, it's that big of a deal. It's that big of a deal that this translation purports to be, uh, but by, by the by the words of Brian Simmons, a new like revelation from God to him that will unveil things about the Bible nobody's ever known before. Like, and I have the quotes, and I will share them with you in the future videos. I'm not making this up. He says an angel touched him, and and his brain got got uh, better. <laughs> God God made his brain better so he could translate Romans. Like, yeah, that's, I have that footage. I'll share it with you guys. But that being said, um, the uh, the approach to the pastor needs to be tailored to them specifically. And then the response, if there's no correction received and if there's a continual usage of what is a perversion of God's word, then I don't know how I could continue to fellowship and support the teaching when the teaching is based on a perversion of, of scripture. So there's, there's my, uh, my two cents on that. I hope that that helps. You guys hopefully are putting your comments in the live chat. I think you already have probably, and I'm going to take your questions today. So here's our second question. This comes from Jeanette Perry. <clears throat> Jeanette Perry says, hi, Mike, have you any solid information on Nikki Gumbel? alpha and the message bible which he recommends couldn't find it in a search here and some friends think he's okay you know what i don't know Nikki Gumble and and alpha i'm not sure what that refers to so i'm sorry i i can't comment on it so i'll just mention on the message bible um so the message bible is kind of a mixed bag um i have i have te- taught on bible translations in the past there's a video where i covered a bunch of them in one video i talked about the message for like three or four minutes in that video um and I was, and you could tell I'm irritated when I'm talking and I look back at it and I go, I, 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 I probably shouldn't be like, irritated while I was teaching. That's not a good thing. But <laughs> with that being said, um, the Message Bible in short is a very, very, very loose paraphrase in my opinion, like in Psalm 1, it, it, it takes like uh, Psalm 1 and, and alters it. In fact, let's look at the Message Bible right now and I will share with you guys um, uh, some, uh. Of the readings that we have in the Message Bible, Psalm chapter one, and th- the reason why I'm going to Psalm one is it's a particular passage that shows like how much liberty was taken in this translation. Um, now you know Psalm one. Let's let's read it first in the ESV, and then we'll look at it in the Message. Here in the ESV, Psalm one says, "Blessed is the man." Hold on. There we go. Delay in the software. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Okay, let's just take ultimately verse 1 is what we'll probably look at in Psalm 1 in the Message Bible, and I'll put it on your screen right now. I'm going to disappear though. (laughs) for a moment but you should see it coming up and this is eugene peterson's translation it's not really a translation it's more of a paraphrase he takes blessed is the man and he translates it how well god must like you okay well let me uh here i do feel slightly odd not even being on the screen there i am so how well god must like you you don't hang out at sin saloon you don't slink along dead end road you don't go to smart mouth college the message translation or the message version. The mes- this is the reason why it's not called the message translation. It's called the message Bible because it's not really a translation proper. The um, the work itself takes massive liberties. Okay, Smart Mouth College. Like this is a concept completely foreign to to the to the author of Psalm One, completely foreign to that culture, and foreign to most of most cultures and people in time. Right, but it's sort of like written for middle America, Kansas kind of audience who has like these sort of euphemisms, right? Dead End Road, Sin Saloon, Smart Mouth College. Like these are things that are going to quickly go out. They're already outdated actually, even at this point. Um, but that's what this is. It's a very idiomatic translation. It's a very um, much from the mind of one man, Eugene Peterson, who um, did have actual credentials, Right, he Unlike, say, Brian Simmons, who translates The Passion and doesn't have proper credentials, and as far as I can tell, doesn't even understand how to translate properly, Eugene Peterson understands how to translate properly. He just gave himself permission to do kind of whatever he wanted and then just experiment with it and not worry about the exact words. He just wanted to kind of give people a fresh experience with the Bible to get them excited about the Bible, that kind of thing. You get that kind of thing, smart mouth college, instead of like the seed of the scoffers, you get that sort of thing really consistently in the message. Um, so I, I think the message Bible is precarious. Um, a lot of people like it. Even scholars will say they like it because they, they just like how accessible it is. Personally, I don't like it. Okay, I, I don't it, I don't think that we should use it. I think that the word of God is so heavy that m- misunderstanding it is is the huge, huge issue. Now, you can misunderstand it because your translation is so word for words, you don't get it. But that then that's a problem. But the Message Bible gives you a misunderstanding that's kind of like a different kind. It can lead you to to thinking you're understanding a passage when really you're not. And if you're if you're thinking the message is like a careful Bible, like it's your study Bible, then you're especially in trouble. Um, that that's my answer on that. So yeah. Now Nikki Gumble uh, Alpha, I don't know what those are. I'm sorry, I can't comment on those things. But I hope that helps you, Jeanette. The Message Bible is not it's not that it's heretical nonsense. It's, it's just reckless and therefore not a good idea. That would be my summary. Uh, John Parizzo says, oh, and by the way, you will find passages in the message that you like, that you're like, oh my goodness, that I, I never saw the verse that way. That really, my eyes are opened. I, and you will find many passages that you're like, wow, that really helped me. So maybe you'll find benefit in reading the message as a, second, as a third version that you might reference sometimes. But it's so interpretive um, and it's so altered that I, d- I don't want to call it the Bible, actually. Uh, John Perizzo says, What is the best way for me to prepare to one day be a pastor? I'm 20 years old and attending college and then seminary. Any suggestions for the years of preparation ahead of me? <clears throat> um You're attending college and then seminary so you already have like the educational aspects coming my encouragement to you is is a couple things um seminary often in in my experience john when i went to and i didn't go to like a a seminary i went to the school of ministry at calvary costa mesa right which is a seminary like program i'm not going to pretend that it was the same level of education as a seminary it was definitely a step down in most of the classes some of them were really high level but but, most of them were kind of a step down from that um but one of the things that you'll find is you're getting that education and i've just i've studied on my own a lot really is the thing but <clears throat> you're going to find that um that education will potentially puff you up and this is the danger in that you you had a really good teacher and you read some really good books and then you th- you may think you know more than you actually do about an issue and it's, i just want to say it's okay to to be uncertain about certain issues in theology or in understanding the passage of scripture and just give yourself space and time Realize that sometimes you'll do a whole class and it was really just an introduction to something. Later on, you'll go deeper and understand it better. Um, But the other thing is this, you want to be prepared for ministry while you're in college, while you're in seminary, still be serving in your local church. This is super important. Do not stop regular service in some capacity in your church, like where you're, you're, you're doing visitations at the hospitals or you're like, well, you can't do that right now, but you're, whatever it is you're doing, do something, whether you're teaching a service or you're just helping be an usher and you're being there as much as possible to serve in ministry in some capacity. Maybe you're doing it online, um, teaching or interacting or witnessing or evangelizing. Do ministry while you're being trained because the training is, you know, in school, is only one piece of the puzzle and you won't know what you're even hearing in those classes well unless you're actually practicing it daily in ministry in the real world so that that's my suggestion my other thought would be um do as much as you can john to remove ego and i'm not accusing you of course i'm speaking from my own experience here but do as much as you can to remove ego and self-concern from from your your mindset about ministry um you can be in school thinking like, okay, which one of us in this class is the better teachers? Who's, who's more theologically wise? And all this kind of competitive thing is really unhealthy. You wanna just be faithful and not worry about all those types of things. Um, in ministry with those you're serving with in church, those other people who are uh, in leadership, there can be no competition between you guys, at least not on your end. You may get it from them, but you just can't have it on your end. And if you instead see them as we're all just tools of the master for his purposes, when I see someone else and they teach better than I do or they know things more than I do, like I'm like excited how great that they are here to be a resource for the body, and that's important. Um, Ian Becker says, "This is question number four. How do I organize my prayer life and find ways to serve the Lord in quarantine?" Um, as far as organizing your prayer life, um, I don't. I mean, I don't know that I have a highly organized prayer life. I think that for me, the biggest issue is that I'm either prayer-focused or not prayer-focused. Like there's days where I've just not been mindful of prayer, where I'm just not sort of depending on the Lord on a regular basis, like moment to moment. And there's days where I am. And the days I am, you know, then I, I just naturally pray. Something happens and I just naturally respond in prayer. Um, I, I I want to pray. I could go watch a YouTube video or something something to entertain myself, and I'm thinking, oh, I want, I want to pray. I want to pray about this issue or that issue. So for me, it's more about mindset. But at the same time, organizing prayer can be helpful. Like that you have like a set schedule. And then you you could even write out like a prayer list that you work through when you pray. Specific topics. Every time you pray, you hit these five issues. That that could be stuff that you do. Um, but I, I don't have specific counsel for you on like what to do there. But you said find, finding ways to serve the Lord in quarantine. Like that, that's actually a, a great question. I think that... Um, if we're really ambitious about serving God, we will find ways to serve God, generally speaking. That you will just find things you can do. So imagine it's it's like um <clears throat> you know, here we are in quarantine, we're kind of bottled up. We're kind of like trapped sort of in, in in homes and in less interaction socially. But I think that when you when you close or seal a jar. It only works depending on how much pressure is in that jar pushing out. And there's there's a there's a sense in which, if you're thinking I've got to serve, I've got to serve, I've got to do something for the Lord, like you will you will creatively find ways to serve God. Maybe you start writing a book that's going to encourage people, whether you take a psalm and then you do like a devotional thing on it. Maybe you you you're a songwriter, so you start writing songs and uh, and recording them. Maybe you start doing tutorials on how people can learn to play guitar so they can worship on their own because they're not in church services right now. So you're like, here's three chords that'll give you 50 worship songs you can play, right? And you're like, I'm going to show you these. You will just creatively find ways to help people. And that's what I would encourage is that ambitious creativity to be stirred up in you. So you can just go for it. Um, Yeah. So Enoch has a question. Uh, How would you respond to an abusive father who pushes the narrative to honor your parents when he really means submit slash worship and disregards the scripture to leave and cleave? Okay, well, uh, Enoch, I'm going to make a couple guesses right now because you used the phrase leave and cleave, which implies that this abusive father is no, uh, that you're no longer, or whether whoever it is, is no longer living under the house of the abusive father. So let me try to answer this in two ways. I'm going to give you a couple tidbits of advice. If you have an abusive parent, whether you're living, especially if you're living in the home, um, it, it's the hardest thing in the world to actually like if they're truly abusive like not just like they're mean but abuse abuse right where it's like physical abuse um, or extreme uh, emotional abuse that kind of thing um, it's the hardest thing in the world but yeah you need to reach out to somebody and tell them like reach out and tell somebody else not a friend not someone your age if you're a teenager this is what teenagers tend to do right we they, when we're teens we tend to tell another teenager who has no clue right they're like it, as far as life skills, they're just kind of dumb when it comes to dealing with abusive families. Okay. They just don't know what's going on or how to help. So you tell somebody who you respect, like a, a leader who is compassionate, who cares about you, um, somebody who you look up to in your life. You go and tell that person about what's, and don't, don't pull punches. Tell them the exact, honest reality. Like, and then they, he, they like, you know, they digs our nails into my skin. Uh, you know, does just give the specifics. That's step one. Now, what happens with these families is the abuse victim, and I've dealt with kids who've been abused, and the abuse victim is told that they're, they're gonna destroy the family and it's all their fault. Oh, if you tell them, the police are gonna come, and they're gonna take him away and destroy our family and all this stuff, and that's a lie. That is such an incredible lie. In fact, what'll probably happen is they will get domestic violence counseling, and then there'll be monitoring of some kind. Basically, it's not gonna ruin your family. It's gonna give your family an opportunity to hopefully change, and that's what you're looking for. I think that if you're out of the home and you have an abusive parent who's saying, you know, do what I say, do what I say, do what I say. Look, when you grow up and move out, your parents are not the authority in your life. That's just what happens. Now, it's especially important when you get married that they are not in a, in a place of authority in your life. This is very important because they can't dictate to you, like, how can the husband be the head of the family if the dad, of if his dad is? How can the, the, the wife be, you know, submitting in a godly fashion to her husband if she's submitting to her parents still? That this is this is this creates a conflict. And so parents will feel this, and sometimes they'll put pressure on you about, I want you to please me, do what I say, and you have to do, to honor God, do what's right for your household. Now, um, that's the leave and cleave idea. That That's like if you're, you know, you get married, you leave. Yeah, you're, they move from authorities, right, to uh dignitaries put it that way when when i'm a kid and i'm living in the home my parents are the authority when i get on my own become an adult and i move out of the house guess what they're no longer the authority they're now dignitaries like i honor them but i don't have to just obey everything they say that's just the natural consequence of growing up you grow up that's my counsel on that my short answer on that Derek johnson has a question um how do you go about finding scholarly articles for the studies you're doing? I have begun doing my own studying, going through Matthew, and some scholarly work would be helpful. Uh, I think that Derek, what I'd recommend is looking for like academic um, commentaries on Matthew, and you would find that like I, I think RT France might, ha- might be a good source for that. I think he has, I think he has one on Matthew. Um, at any rate, what these guys are going to do is in their footnotes, they're going to give you access to even more scholarly content right where they go bring this on this issue see so and so and you may have a reference to a book that you might want to buy or whatever so what you have is one scholar helping you get access to lots of scholarship but when i'm searching for one specific issue i i use like um i use ebsco which which is like a a way of searching databases of scholarly journal articles and books and all kinds of stuff and so that is laborious total pain in the rear end kind of work like you could search for hours and hours and not find what you're looking for it's just long slow reading article and going nope that wasn't what i was looking for but occasionally you find it and it's like gold when you do um that's just what research looks like i mean i'm not maybe i'm not very good at it but it takes a long time and yeah i use ebsco you can also just go to google scholar Um, i think it's actually scholar.google.com but if you just go to Google, type Google Scholar, you can actually search there for different scholarly resources. And you you can't just assume whatever you get as a result is reliable and true, okay? There's gonna be a massive amount of thinking and discernment you gotta do when looking at this content. But it may help you find something that you're looking for the needles in the haystack. This is slow, methodical work. Also, Google Books, you can search Google Books and then you may find stuff there. Pay attention to the search terms you use, to what responses you get, try to get better at searching, all that kind of thing. There's my, uh, my short answer for you. I'm still getting better. Like me, two years ago, three years ago, I wasn't nearly as good at researching as I am now, but that's because I'm just able to do it with all my time and so I'm slowly get better and better at it and you will too. Susan Krieg has a question. What does the Bible say about listening prayer? Should we spend some time in silence listening for God's voice? Um, That's a good question, Susan. I don't think I've ever thought to survey scripture, at least in my head, and think, is there anything in here about listening prayer? Nothing stands out to me in my mind um, that, like, if you stop and pause and listen that this is exampled in scripture, like, then you'll kind of get, like, a special revelation from God. Now, that being said, I don't have a problem with it, inherently, like I'm not gonna be like, how dare you stop and ask God if he might wanna show you something and just listen. Like, that's okay, I'm not gonna argue against it. But but if it becomes instilled as like a practice, and then people are teaching you how to do it, oh, here's the tips for listening prayer, start with this, do A, then B, then C, and they're trying to for, to formalize it and turn it into like a, a, a process that's repeatable to hear God's voice like that I'm concerned about okay that I'm concerned about because this is like going really out there um yeah and anytime people try to formulize the work of the Holy Spirit I have real problems with that um over the years I've slowly come to the slowly come to the place that the, the the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't need a formula and If you have a formula for creating the work of the spirit, you're very possibly creating a fabrication of the work of the spirit. Now, I I want to be careful because I'm speaking with a big open blanket term here. So maybe there's an area where I need to correct this or tweak it, but my general vibe is that when I look at examples like say Bethel, where they're teaching prophecy and they're doing it in a way that looks very obviously teaching people to do fake prophecy and then call it real prophecy, or they're doing healings where they're looking to create what are sometimes fake healings and then calling it real healings, when they when they present their formulas for prophecy and healing, two of the major things they focus on, I look at the formula and I go, this formula would create fake stuff just as much as it might create real things. And that's the problem I have with the formulas. So a formula for listening prayer that might have me mistaking my thoughts for God, that's dangerous. But the idea of pausing and just saying, Lord, there's there something I should know and I pray and I just wait. Like, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have any issue with that in and of itself. So there's my my thoughts, Susan. And I have had the Lord, I believe, reveal things to me in prayer. I stop and I pray and I've had God show me things many, many times. And I think it was the Lord, right? Um, I'm not a prophet in that. I just think that God did reveal things to me many times. And so I'm totally open to that. I'm just worried about the formulas. Okay, so V. Palombi has a question. Why did God not desire for the people to return and be healed in Isaiah 6? in Isaiah 6. I'm going to read the passage so we can all be on the same page with it. And this passage is also quoted in the New Testament um, by Jesus. This is pretty interesting. So um, Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah gets commissioned. He gets sent out. God is sending out Isaiah, this great prophet, to the people. And he, he sees the Lord. Um, he he sees the angels crying out, "Holy, holy!" He he's like, "Oh, woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I'm going to die." Right. Well, then he gets this coal that touches his lips. I think it's beautiful because I think that that is a picture of. Okay, here let me just let me just go off on my typology of Christ in the Old Testament for a second. So. The, you know, the, the idea that there's a coal from an altar in heaven and the coal touches his mouth and it's and he is uh, forgiven, right? He's cleansed by this coal. Well, coals on altars were altars for sacrifice and sacrifices that would bleed down onto the coals. And there's only one sacrifice that's said to have happened in heaven in the Bible or to be offered in heaven, excuse me. I want to be careful there with my words. Jesus, he offered himself in heaven, He offered himself. And so there's like maybe a picture here of how Christ and his blood is the thing that ultimately cleanses Isaiah, even there as he realizes that he's a sinner standing before the wonderful Holy God. And I think that's amazing. All right. Then, then verse eight, he goes like, who shall I send? And Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. I want to go. I'll go for you, Lord. I'll answer this call. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Like, you're not going to get it. May the heart of this, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste and without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Now, what I'll mention here is a couple quick things. Um... This is what he's going to say to the people. He's going to tell them, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. But that's the phrase he's going to say. Hey, you're going to hear, but you're not going to get it. You're going to see, but not perceive. So Isaiah's message will not be received. They will hear him, but they won't listen. Really, they won't receive it. They won't change. Then God tells Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. I think the way that Isaiah did this was he preached and the people, they were already in a place of wanting to reject God. They heard the message. The message was repulsive to them. They got even more angry. They closed themselves even harder so that the message hardened their hearts. The message hardened their hearts. That's kind of how I perceive that happening. So to um, answer your question, make sure I I don't get off track on other issues related to this. Um, Why did God not desire for the people to return and be healed in Isaiah 6? Actually, so Isaiah 6 doesn't say God doesn't want them to turn and be healed. He just says that Isaiah is going to go and then they're going to reject him and that Isaiah's ministry is going to harden them even more. So does I does God want them to be healed? I think if you read all of Isaiah, you'll see that God wants them to be healed, right? Um, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. That's Isaiah. God's wanting to redeem them. And he's like, you know, I've stricken you here. I've hit you here. Why don't you, why don't you turn and be healed? So God's heart for the people is to have them turn and be healed. But there is a, a, a judgment where um, the message of God causes you to hate God more. And and if and if this sounds confusing, think about it this way. Let's say that you hated my guts. Like you absolutely hated me. And then I come over to your house and I'm being super, super nice to you. And I'm like, I'm trying to offer you gifts and kindness. And like, because you hate me already, when I'm offering you all this, you hate me more. You're like even more irritated and frustrated with me. And it's kind of like this, like, that, that kind of might be some of the things that's going on here. Although Isaiah does come with a strong and harsh message, but it's true. Um, then there's Jesus and how he quotes it. And I have a video on that in my, in my, um, study on why God hardens hearts. And that's actually through the book of Romans. But if you look up why God hardens hearts, you will see that on YouTube. And I hope that that would be a benefit to you. So Thank you guys for joining me, by the way. I didn't introduce myself. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. This is what I do every Friday at this time. We talk your questions, and I try to give you the best answers I can, fully willing to say that I don't know something, for there are many things which I do not know. Um, but if I even have a clue, I will try to share something helpful for you. And um, Hopefully, this is a big blessing to you. If you like this kind of thing, subscribe um, and click that bell icon and all those youtube things that you do. The reason is because then you'll know when I Monday, post this, hopefully Monday, post this video from Trimper Longman, interviewed like the guy on Song of Songs and he rips a new one into the Passion Translation, but in a very scholarly way. And I thought it was fantastic. I can't wait to do more. And you'll be able to get that stuff. Um, Adriano says, Hi, Mike, love your videos. What did Jesus mean by turn the other cheek, give away your tunic, go an extra mile in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. What about self-defense or when being taken advantage of? This is a great question. I love this question. Now, as a youth pastor for years, I was like I want to help kids know what to do with bullies in school. What about turn the other cheek? If a kid comes up in class and just pops him, do they turn the other cheek and then he hits him again? Do they just do it again and he just keeps hitting and and is are we pacifists? Is that it? We're just pacifists in all scenarios? And I think the answer is no. I think pacifism itself is 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 um uh, is evil. Um not not nonviolence. Like you can be nonviolent in many many situations, and in almost every situation, I am nonviolent. Okay, but ultimate total pacifism, I think, is evil, and I think it makes it makes um, it makes us impotent to to help protect victims, and that is not good. So let's look at this passage, and we'll talk about it. Matthew five thirty eight. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. And he goes on, I'll read on in a minute. But I'll start here. You've heard it was said an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now the thing, here's the short Bible study. I'm not going to give you the long one. The thing is, they were taking this Old Testament truth about court systems right? Court systems are to be perfect justice systems. If somebody knocks an eye out, you give them the value of an eye or um, or knock their eye out. I think they would normally just give the value of an eye. They'd pay the person for it uh, or a tooth or you, you would have equal scales. The scales of justice are equal, but they were applying this rule, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth into personal vengeance, not courtroom justice. And we know the big difference, right? Person hits me with their car. I take him to court. I ask him to pay for my car, right? That's one thing. They hit me with my car. Um, I get back in my car and hit them back. Okay, hold on. That's just personal vengeance. That's not justice. And that's the difference Jesus is dealing with. Then in verse 39, he gives them what what to do on a personal level, not courtrooms, personal level. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, if you get slapped, if I slapped you, most people are right-handed. If they do, they slap you with their right hand. When they slap you, they hit you on your left cheek. Okay, but if you get slapped on your right cheek, you're either getting hit with their weak hand or you're getting backhanded. Either way, this is not physical assault in the sense of trying to kill you, clearly, right? Someone's like, I will kill you, and they slap you. (laughs) Yeah, it's not going to kill me. Like, am I hurt? I won't like it. What he's saying is an insult or a injury that ultimately is not a huge deal, you need to just let it go. That is totally consistent with still defending yourself if someone's trying to kill you. And you should defend yourself if someone's trying to kill you, generally speaking. So do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. That means in the initial injury, the initial hurt, the initial strike, you turn the other cheek. He doesn't say keep turning forever and ever until you die. He doesn't say that. So I don't want to pretend he does. It's an initial, I am not going to give what I get. I'm going to be a gracious person. When, when someone wounds me, I will turn the other cheek. I will not respond back. With angry, um, hurtful, striking back to those who strike me—that is one of the hardest things to do. It's like we're bred into it as children. You, I hit you because you hit me, and we always hit harder, right? Than the first guy. That's the idea. But Jesus is saying, don't do that. Then in verse forty, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Just yield, just give in, right? And and this does have an issue with today's lawsuits. Of course, taking someone's shirt isn't the same as suing them for ten million dollars. I'm not sure that Jesus would say, if they sue you for more money than you'll make in your entire life and you're going to live the rest of your days in debt, just give it to them. I don't know that I would apply it that way. Your shirt um, and your coat aren't the same as that. So I just don't want to go too far with it. Then verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. This was something that centurions could do. A centurion could take a Jewish person uh, is, and they could just demand, hey, carry this for one mile with me. And that was the limit. They can only go one mile. And Jesus says, go too go two miles. Do you get the idea that we're just supposed to be this gracious, kind, giving, and forgiving people? And that is the model. And it's not, we we are not fair. Christians are not to be fair. We're to be gracious and generous and to go the next step, go the extra mile. This is where that phrase comes from. Um, So that, that should be my normal thing. That should be my normal thing. Give to him who asks you, Asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Which now, if you take this and you apply with no wisdom whatsoever, then we all should be giving all our money to Kenneth Copeland. Because he asked, right? I could go, we could go to his website right now. Look, what, what is, let's 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 take a look. Let's take a look at Kenneth Copeland's website. And let's see if he wants you to give to him. Because I'll bet you. All right, hold on. I'm going to show it to you right now. KCV, KCM.org, let's click it. There we go. Look right here. Give. It's the it's the most highlight. It's the you know it's the first thing your eyes go to, right? It's got bigger font. It's bold. It's a big giant button because Kenneth Copeland has a priority. And you click it, and it says, right, your seed sown will go to work immediately, transforming believers' lives worldwide. Giving's quick, easy, and secure. So you can give right now. You can give right now. Look, you can enter any amount you want. You can put in all your credit card data. Go for it, guys. But. You understand, right, that like Jesus is like give to him who asks of you is talking about personal relationships, not just like shysters and frauds and people who are trying to scam you. Otherwise, I'd be all my money would have been given to Nigerian princes years ago. Um, But rather, it's about having a generous heart. Like if you know that what you're giving away is being spent on meth and self-destruction, then you don't need to give it like this is about having a generous heart. Wisdom may tell you not to give, but it will not be greed. Our greediness is not the thing that keeps us from giving. That's the idea. Um, at least that's my understanding of it. So when you say, um, what about self-defense or when you're being taken advantage of? I would say being taken advantage of actually is generally where you say, I'm going to yield, I'm going to yield, I'm going to yield. This doesn't mean you never put your foot down. When Paul was uh, was being lied about and they were trying to um, to ultimately kill him, and they wanted to take him to court and they were planning planning to murder him on the way. He appealed to Caesar so he would be sent to Rome instead. That appeal to Caesar was not this like, give give to him who asks if you be totally passive because this this isn't meant to be a principle that has like no wisdom attached to it. And so Paul's like, I appeal to Caesar. Okay, well, he he effectively was pushing them up in the court system to fight them in court. And that was wise. It saved his life and it was the right thing to do. And so there are times to do that. If, if you're being taken advantage of in any kind of minor fashion, yield and give in. If it's an extreme fashion, wisdom may say this, to put a stop to it, but not because of bitterness, but because of wisdom. There's my, my answer. We have examples in scripture of self-defense. Jesus told them to take up swords. I think this was so they could use self-defense. Although he didn't let them preemptively attack either or stop his martyrdom. I know this is a complicated issue, but I think that wisdom is the thing that gives us the ability to figure out what to do in these different scenarios. Jack Bradley says, is accepting Jesus in our life the only way to heaven? For someone who has never heard the gospel or has seen harmful representations of it, will they also be given grace? Um, Is accepting Jesus in our life the only way to heaven? Um, I think accepting Christ is the only way to heaven. I do think that we have examples in scripture and, and there's a video I reference all the time, but I do it because I think that it's, really important there's a teaching i did on what about those who never hear the gospel and i'm going to reference that for you jack i really encourage you go look at it look it's not super clickbaity it doesn't get lots of views for that reason but the content in it i think is extremely valuable i did a survey through scripture showing what happens for those who never hear the gospel by what by talking about those in the the bible who never hear the gospel yet seem to be saved okay and I, i build that case basically um, they, when they receive lesser information, but they respond to it in faith, they're in that position of salvation, like they're going to be saved. When they encounter Christ later, every one of those people will accept Christ. They will receive Christ. And in a sense, they already did receive him, even though it was like just a just a glimmer, just a little bit. They didn't really fully understand. So in a sense, Abraham accepted Christ, even though he knew very little about Jesus Christ at the time. Does that make sense i hope that that makes sense i'll put it this way let's say that i send a a, i send a letter ahead and i say hey i'm coming your way soon but it doesn't tell you a lot of details about me it just says like prepare the bed i'll be staying at your house and you know very little about me but you prepare the bed and then later when i show up this is like abraham right he's prepared the bed he doesn't know all the details but he has faith and he has accepted that coming one and then later when I show up, of course, you let me in the room. I know you'll let me in the room. You already prepared the bed. Can I say this? That the the Old Testament saints, or even those some alive today, who are receiving God without knowing all the details about the gospel and about Christ, it's like they're like Abraham in that. I've, I've, I've responded to what God has revealed. I've embraced, I've accepted him, I've received him. And so, of course, when he shows up in my life more, I will already be in that place of receiving him. So it's not like they were unsaved and they got saved at a later date. I would say rather they were already responding in faith to what God has revealed. Um, now, if the big mistake people do is they take this, this this idea of being saved with sort of partial knowledge, right? Not the full knowledge of the gospel. And they try to push that onto people who are like um, Muslims. Okay, well, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but Muslims in Islam is built a rejection of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so Jesus has been rejected by those who are knowingly embracing Islam Jesus has been absolutely rejected by anybody in that category so I can't really say they're like Abraham well they just have partial knowledge like well Islam is based on the idea that that Jesus is not the son of God like that's a foundational doctrine in Islam Um, Hinduism is based on the embracing of the pagan gods and the idolatry that God has rejected so you can't really say that you know Hindu beliefs are acceptable in some sense either so um yeah, that, that, that would be where I don't want to go with that doctrine. And I explain all this longer in that video, what happens to those who never hear the gospel. Um, yeah. Now, what if you've heard a harmful, only harmful representations of the gospel, like a Jehovah's witnesses or something? Um, I want to be open to God having more grace. I think God measures us based on what we did know and what we could know. Right. But I also want to recognize that People won't just be saved because they were in a hard luck situation. They have an encounter with the revelation of God in their life and how they respond is what matters. I can't just blame it all on other things. So I, I don't, I don't want to try to always answer those kinds of questions because it's a little beyond my knowledge, but I'm not going to feel secure unless they know and accept the gospel of Christ. Patience Kachidza says, hi, pastor Mike. How do I help my mother-in-law? She says she's been ordained as an elder in the church and she's excited about it. Thanks. Um, patience. So here's a th- couple thoughts on this. You're, um, if a woman is functioning as an elder and this is not, and I don't think that this is a biblical thing that we should have. Okay. And m- it's possible I'm wrong. I, I, I will hopefully next year, I'm going to do like a more in-depth study on this topic and bring a teaching that I think will solidify me more on it and hopefully help others as well. But let's suppose that my understanding up to this point is correct. Um, then it's not like her salvation's in question here. Okay, there is an issue, there is a problem, but but there's other considerations. Elder might not even mean elder. Like there's some places where pastor doesn't even mean pastor. Like they call everybody a pastor. It's like I'm the pastor of toilet cleaning or something. I mean, everybody gets the term pastor, but they're not functioning as a pastor and elder does in that biblical sense. So depending on what she's doing, like if she's an elder and all she's doing is like hospitality things in the church, then it's like, well, it's just a term that doesn't have a lot of, functional meaning so i'm be concerned if she's being raised up into that leadership role and is just doing things that god is not asking her to do how would you deal with it um you would have to think of how to talk to her and then you'd have to actually build a case that explains why you're concerned about it but first you might have to ask is she gonna have ears to hear um does she care and are you really ready to have that conversation next year hopefully god willing i will do a video teaching on this topic and i'm going to get into nitty-gritty details I may pause all my teaching for a month and just study this one issue because I think it's really relevant and I want to hear all sides. Maybe that would be a resource that you could share. Uh, You just have to wait a whole year. (laughs) Sorry, patience. But your name is patience. So that shouldn't be a problem. Um, It's me says, how do I find God? How do I find God? Praying and reading the Bible got me nowhere in five months and church is not available at the moment. New age gave me comfort while searching, but Christ only gave me confusion. Wow, it's me. It sounds like you're in a very heightened state of emotional distress, to be completely honest, right? That sounds like that. And here you want me to give you, uh, partially I want to give you like facts of information, but I recognize that you're in this like state of like, I want to feel better. I mean, that, if I'm understanding you correctly, forgive me if I'm not. You're in a place of, I want to feel better. I feel like the new age made me feel better, yet for some reason you felt like it wasn't true, so you abandoned that. But then Christianity, you're, you're not sensing the like, the like sort of emotional comfort that you felt with new age. And I'll, I'll just say this, um, it's me, here's a couple things I'll mention. One, the the primary goal in Christianity is not making you feel better. Uh, now hear me out, don't don't shut me out yet, but Making you feel good, making you feel emotionally comforted is not the primary thing in Christianity. In the new age, that may have been like the way that you confirmed something was true is that you felt like it was comforting. Um, But sometimes that's not reality. And it may or may not be the plan that God has for you right at the moment. I do think that when you receive Christ and when you have the awareness of his love for you and when you know your sins are forgiven and when you know that your eternal joy and life in heaven is secure in Christ that you have an inheritance that is undefiled and can't be taken away from you when you know that you will live forever in perfect fellowship and harmony with God and with people whom he has redeemed when you know that love will be the theme of your existence forever like I don't know how that doesn't comfort you unless maybe you don't know it yet maybe you've been reading the Bible praying but like there isn't like that that reception of the truth of God so my prayer for you it's me is that you would Place your faith in Christ, not just search, but place your trust in Christ and know the comfort and the joy and the love that he has. But that's still not the main goal. Like I might go through times where I feel very little comfort because of my own, like the blockage in my own head, right? Because we have these glorious truths. If you're a Christian, you have these glorious, wonderful truths that should bring you joy at all times. But we're also stupid people and we sometimes just lack joy because our perspective is off because we're believing weird things We have strong we have wrong ideas or we have bad practices that are clouding us Because sin can bring a cloud over the joy and the hope and the comfort that you can have in Christ All those things could be happening But when you say you've been reading the Bible and praying for five months The only thing you didn't mention there is you've been trusting in Christ And my thought is if you're trusting Christ, how does his promise not bring you comfort? Resurrection hope, forgiveness for your sin, um, that, there, that there's a God who loves you, that God loves you and has made a way for you to know him. That that this is... I'm I'm amazed. Uh, I just talk about it now and I, I receive more comfort as I even think about it and discuss it. And if that's not happening, there may just be that there's been searching, but there has not been faith placed in Christ yet. It's me. Place your faith and trust in Christ. And if you're like, but Mike, I want to, but I don't know how. I don't know how. Then... I'm going to say something that might sound kind of boring. I'm going to be like, continue seeking, read the Bible and pray. But I'm going to add one more to it. When we trust in Christ, there is acts of obedience that come naturally as a result of our faith. I'm going to encourage you to set aside uh, sinful behaviors and to seek the Lord in that way, right? Where, where you're, you're walking in godliness and that that is something else that can help with Unclouding the clouds, if that makes sense. So it's me. God bless you, you guys. Please, please say a prayer for it. In fact, let's let's pray for this person right now. Um, I don't know if you're a boy or girl, so forgive me. But um, God, we pray for it. it's me. We pray that that he or she would would have you speaking, ministering to them, opening their eyes to see the truth and the goodness and the love and the comfort and the hope that there is in Christ, and helping them to spiritually come to that place of transformation and change, to be overwhelmed and overcome by the hope that there is in you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, Natural Glory has a question. How do we study the Bible properly? Uh, Natural Glory, that is a long <laughs> that's a long answer and I'm running out of time. So I'm going to start moving real fast, but I'll say this. You study it by making sure that bef- you know you you abandon all your preconceived things that you want this passage to do for you and you just ask what is it saying to the pe- to the original audience by the original author. What was it saying? Then you can ask, now, how do I apply that into my life? And that right there is the simplest thing. You, 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 And this is, I mean, as a pastor, I learned this. Like early on, I'm doing studies and I'm going to scriptures. and I'm trying to find things. Oh, I heard the guy use this verse for this. It was really good. I'm going to use that in my study. I go check the context. Oh, I can't use it. I mean, I've had so many verses ripped out of my studies because I went and looked at them in context. So yeah, read it in context. You won't have as many um, verses to use for everything you want but you will have the real teaching of scripture which is actually more important and powerful now we see ninja for hire question 14 says is there any evidence on the inspiration of the canonization of the in the of the bible or was or is the canonization something that was helpful but not inspired and thus inspired texts beyond the bible could exist um well okay this is kind of complicated but let me just say this that Technically inspired texts beyond the Bible could exist whether you think the canon was inspired or not I mean like theoretically, I don't think this is true in any way shape or form But theoretically I just want to shake us up a bit here You could have a canon that God like he not only gave you the books But he inspired somebody to write a list of books. So he gave you the list and the books Why can't God have other writings? Like how does that list mean and no more? Where's that part? Right? So you, you don't have any security in having an inspired list. There just there isn't any security in not having other books. Um, but what we have is we have the inspiration of, of, of Scripture. My belief is we have canon. The canon is the Scripture. Um, but the list is merely the observations of people. And how do I know that we have the perfect list? All I know is that God inspired Scripture. And if you... Look, here's the Christian, right? If you're a Christian and you're thinking God inspired the Bible... But who knows if we really if he preserved it and kept it and we actually have his word today. I think that is a very strange and um shall I call it a um what do they call it? A uh oh man, what's the term that people always atheists always want to say it about us? Um cognitive dissonance. That is that is a cogni that is their like favorite term to just label things they don't they don't like cognitive dissonance though, is, is, is the idea that God inspired all these books of the Bible, but we have no clue whether we got them or not. Um, I mean, consider the, the, the canonization is, is a result of the inspiration, but the actual canon, like there is a real canon. That's just the actual books themselves. My list of the books isn't the canon. Right, that's a list representing these are the books God gave us. Um, the early church, their basic idea was this. They, they knew that we had the Old Testament that was ratified by the Jews, ratified by Jesus himself. So we have, we have Genesis through Malachi. The New Testament, we had the four Gospels, first thing that was received by the church and was received all over the place. We have the uh, epistles of Paul and the writings of Paul, which were also very quickly received. There is some debate on things like Revelation, um, uh, I think Third John, there was like some discussion in the church. And the real issue they were asking here isn't, is it good? Is it nice? Do we like it? They were asking, is it apostolic? Did this come from the apostles? And the bottom line is they said yes. So yeah, I, I believe that God has preserved his word now if you're saying well why would i think like what inspired reason do i have to think that if god gave us books he'd preserve those books and he'd preserve us with the knowledge of which books you know we should use that his providence would just make it happen why would i think that i think that you have a prototype example of this with the old testament so the old testament canon it was genesis through malachi we have the same canon the jew today the protestants today have the same canon that the jews have the uh, catholic church has added stuff into there and i'm not going to get into that debate right now but that's what happened um but those books of the old testament those 39 books those books were ratified by jesus himself when he refers to the scripture being the law the prophets and the writings those are those threefold terminology they'd use for all those books so here we have our lord and savior jesus the one who's the foundation of my faith he's affirming that there was inspire books and that the list of them was accurate in the first century now to suppose otherwise for the new Testament, it seems really far stretched. God's going to then inspire books, but not preserve them as well. So if, if you believe in Jesus, you should believe we have the right Bible. That's what I'm saying. And if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm not really sure how you process this question. Cause you don't believe there is a canon, right? If you don't trust in Christ, you don't think there is an inspired Bible, right? None of it's inspired. So how, why are we arguing about what the list is? It just seems like an in-house discussion for Christians. I would instead encourage you to look at the resurrection of Christ, look at the evidence of prophecy and give your faith and trust to Christ. Um, let's look at Reggie LQ who says, why did God create the tree of good and of evil if his foreknowledge knew he would sin, knew they would sin, I think you meant. Um, well, let me first say this. Um, uh, why questions about the motives of God are are tough questions to ask, right? Because for instance, you might be like, Mike, why didn't you get into the Apocrypha just now? You mentioned the Catholic Apoc- Apocrypha, but you didn't get into it. Isn't that a big deal? Why didn't you get into it? Now, I have my reasons why I didn't, but you guessing at those reasons might actually create a picture of me that's not true, right? Or why is Mike obsessed with the Passion Translation? Why is Mike doing all this work on the Passion Translation? Doesn't he care about like evangelism? Doesn't he? Is it because he cares more about like nitpicking translations? Like if you start guessing what you think are my motives, you may project your fears or your hopes onto me incorrectly and here when you're guessing at the motives of god almighty that can be a problem i can say this the tree of the knowledge of good and evil presented adam and eve with a choice to obey or disobey god what god did was he gave people a free will choice whether to trust and obey him or not to and if you say why did he i can theorize well without a choice you don't have the best kind of love you know if my wife couldn't choose me if she was forced to choose me if there was no other option for her to say but to say yes to my proposal then that doesn't feel like as good of a love. Um, uh, By having free will choice, mankind becomes a better type of being. A a being that has choices is a better kind of being than a being that doesn't. Would you rather have a robot or a person that you fellowship with? Like, well, I'd rather have a person who has free will choices. So maybe it makes us better kind of beings. Maybe that's the trade-off, is the potential for evil creates a better kind of being by virtue of having free will. But but I don't want to say like, And this is why god did it right because god may have all sorts of motives that are above and beyond my thinking here i think he had good reasons and i do think his foreknowledge that man would sin doesn't put him on the hook that man sins. um you know my uh my foreknowledge that my students won't do their homework doesn't mean i'm a bad teacher because i assigned homework right that i'm just not responsible for the bad decisions of other people and I think that there were goods that came out of it and he had good reasons for it. Lassie Kleiman says, Matthew 8, 5 through 9, why does Jesus ask for bread in verse 5? And why do they bring the fish to him in verse 7? Does it mean Jesus cannot create food out of thin air, but he needs something to start with? Um, let's look at this one. I'll try to answer it pretty quickly. Um, another one in Matthew 5. Um, no, no, I couldn't. Matthew 8, I was going to say. Yeah, Matthew 8. Let's look at that. And here it says, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant's lying. I don't think this is what you meant. Mark. That makes a lot more sense. Mark. (laughs) Mark 8, 5. Okay. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to the disciples to his disciples to serve them and they served them to the people they also had a few small fish and after he had blessed them he ordered these to be served as well and they ate and were satisfied and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces about four thousand were there and he sent them away so jesus multiplies the bread and loaves you guys are familiar with this this passage i'm pretty sure and the questions about it are um why does jesus ask for bread well again, we're getting into the wise, like into the mind of Christ here, but in a sense, okay, my best guess here is that he wanted to use what was available. And there's some lesson there about maybe about using what's available, right? Not just God do it for me. It's like, give him what you've got and then see what he does with it. There may be a lesson there. Um, why do they bring the fish to him in verse seven? They also had a few small fish. After he blessed them, he ordered those to be served as well. Well, They're just, it's the same. They're just bringing all the food. So there's bread and there's fish. They bring him the food and they just mention bread and fish. I don't really see a lot of significance there. Does it mean Jesus cannot create food out of thin air, but he needs something to start with? Uh, What Jesus does do doesn't give us the limits of what Jesus can do, right? Jesus walked to Jerusalem. Does that mean Jesus can't ride a horse? Does that mean Jesus can't fly if he feels like it? Jesus was crucified does that mean he couldn't physically get off the cross if we wanted to So what jesus does do does not give us the limits of what he can do That's the principle I want to point out. Hebrews 1 tells us that that through christ the worlds were made So we're talking about the limits of jesus's power. Well He's spoken this in these last days in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world the world was made through him he, he has all the power to do anything he wants. He deliberately limited himself and didn't do those things doesn't mean he couldn't do what he didn't do. Uh, 17, Ethan Tucker, do you view the early chapters of Genesis as mythology or as history? I know it's not a key issue, but would love your opinion, love your work. This is again, so, so guys, I'm gonna let you know my thought process right now for next year. And I don't know for sure I'll do this, but I'm very, very interested about it. I'm seriously considering it. That for a season next year, I will stop my weekly teaching, kind of what I'm doing here in December with the Passion Project, I'll stop my weekly like Monday teaching and I'll just stop and I'll just say, hey women in the Bible um, all those troubling and difficult passages, let me spend a research project on that. Genesis, let me spend a research project on Genesis, the, the origin passages in Genesis in particular. And I'm really considering doing this because I feel like I can do what I did with the marriage study where I bring like a very long thorough, thoughtful kind of pinnacle hopefully video that's like the go-to resource for people in the future on these same topics and uh, it'll mean less content for me it'll probably mean less views on youtube but i feel like the value would be totally worth it so i'm probably going to do that sometime next year some seasons of just research till my brain falls out put it back in and then do a long teaching on an issue answering all those questions when it comes to genesis i um i'm not sure i'm not confident what my answer here is i used to be young earth creationist in genesis one uh two um and other related passages and i and it's not science that affects my view here i actually heard good exegetical reasons to make me question that view now i'm not really quite sure um i'm very open to old earth um and I'm, t- I'm not talking about science here, people can't separate the two, they can't just study the Bible for the Bible, study science for science, but they, they, they can't, like, just sidebar the science issue, right, what does archaeology teach us, what is all that, and I'm just talking about the text, okay, this is my focus, is the text of scripture, I'm not convinced that the text of scripture gives us young earth, I'm not convinced that it gives us that at all, um, and yet I'm not sure what my view is, so I'm open, And maybe next year I can come with a more thoughtful approach. Um, I want to be faithful to scripture on this issue. And I will share unfiltered, well-researched opinions at that point. Ethan Zaragoza says, If I have turned away from the Lord after being close to him, is there any chance of coming back to him? I basically live like the world for a year and a half and don't know if God is done with me. Ethan, the story of the prodigal son. Please, please go read it. Please go look it up. The prodigal son. Read it. Does God want you back? Read Jeremiah, where God is preaching and talking to his backslidden wicked, wicked people that were killing their babies, burning their babies to false gods. And he says, come back to me. Come back to me, Israel. The entire Bible is God reaching out to sinners to turn back to him. Don't believe the lie that God doesn't want you back. Jesus died on the cross to bring you back. And he didn't just die for sins you committed before you heard about him. He died for sin, period, all of the above. So, yeah, God loves you. He wants you back. End of story. End of story. Comes with open arms. You just need to repent, trust, and that's it. Be washed. Be cleansed. Know His grace, know His forgiveness. We come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may find grace and mercy to help in time of need. You're in time of need, Ethan. Come boldly. Emil Cadron says, "Any tips on how to start believing? I've been atheistic all my life." Uh, Emil, um, here's here's my thoughts for you. Um, you, you, uh, I do think that we can actually choose what we believe to an extent. It's not like I can just go, I choose to believe and just make something up. I've got to have some reasoning going on there. But if you're like thinking, okay. Okay, let me put it in categories. I just thought of a better way to answer you. <laughs> put it in categories. Um, there is the um, the reasoning category. Like I, I want to gather the reasons and evidence for God. That's going to give me intellectual reasons to believe in God. Then there's like the life, because you're a whole person. You're not just a mind, right? So. There's the life stuff, and these are the practices one does in order to try to draw near to God in a practical way. So I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, I'm going to worship services, or at least attending online to the best of my ability. And those types of things, uh, interacting and discussing these things, watching a live stream of pastors working through questions in a biblical fashion, all these kinds of things are doing the, the type of things that help expose you to that environment and help stir up those things in you. So I think those are all good, positive things to do. And then, of course, prayer. Prayer is, I mean, in prayer, it's like you're, it's like you're, forgive the term, you guys, but it's like you're naked before God. It's like there's nothing I can do to uh, be more raw than to just talk to God. There's me talking to God. And so I recommend prayer, honest, open, real prayer. Now, can you just, choose to believe well you make choices that affect your beliefs right and if you go and listen to a bunch of christopher hitchens you're making a choice that's probably going to affect your belief although hitchens is is uh, upon examination we find that he's incredibly intelligent rhetorically good but he's just irrational when it comes to religion um sadly but uh but yeah if you if you make a choice to listen instead to other content it's that decision is affecting you and I think that matters a lot. So, Emil, those are some of the tips I'd have for you. Lauren Brion says, Our church believes you have the Holy Spirit once saved, but can it receive a prayer language through a separate experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is this scriptural? Thanks so much. I think when it comes to um the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate doctrine, I'm not, I'm not fully on board. And I've got to tell you, Lauren, I'm not fully, I haven't fully wrapped my head around this. I was taught that when I was younger as well. And I do think that I do find in scripture, this idea of like second, third experiences with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit came upon somebody for a particular purpose or cause, something like that. I do see that, but I don't see that as always resulting in speaking in tongues. I don't think that that's like baptism of spirit equals tongues every time. I have, I have other teaching on that you might look up. I think that that's actually destructive. I think it causes paranoia and it causes people to feel like they have to fake speaking in tongues and I'm very opposed to faking the work of the Holy Spirit. I'd rather, I'd rather get one prophecy in 10 years that's real than a thousand prophecies in 10 years and one of them was real, okay? Easily, any day of the week, okay? So I'd rather just see the authentic than the fake and I'm happy with that. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm really not on board with the idea that you, here's how it works. You get the baptism of the spirit after you're saved and you always speak in tongues. Like, I think this is like, I don't get that from scripture, right? There's examples of people speaking in tongues. It's not consistent. It's not every time. It's not everybody who gets it. Paul talks in first Corinthians about how not everyone speaks in tongues. Um, not everyone speaks in tongues, right? Like, and he doesn't say that's a problem. In fact, he says it's the, it's, it presents it like it's the norm. Does everyone Does Everyone speak in tongues. It's like, obviously not. And this isn't like a deficiency in their spirit. So I guess I'm not on the fence that much. Don't believe the baptism of the Spirit is this separate thing that happens that you have to speak in tongues. I do think there are experiences with the Holy Spirit one can have after they're saved where God empowers you for whatever. And I'm open to that. So that's why I'm not a cessationist. Um, All right. And I got a bonus question. This is number 21 from Sarah Zimmerman. Sent me a bonus question. She's doing the cues today. And she says uh, from Solomon Paprocki, should a Christian take the COVID vaccine? And I step into the hornet's nest when I say this. Um, My knowledge of vaccines, please don't send me articles. Please don't. (laughs) I've been sent them before and I'm not interested. Um, Should a Christian take the COVID vaccine? I think that everybody's going to have to measure this out and think about, think it out for themselves. Where I stand right now, this is not me as a Bible teacher. This is not me as some sort of spiritual leader, okay? This is Mike Winger. Um, if I was asked to be part of a COVID trial vaccine, I would say yes. If they come out with a vaccine and, it, and that would be to benefit others, I, I would take a risk to benefit others. I think that would be worth it. Um, if the vaccine comes out and it's being mass produced, unless I have good reason not to do it. And I'm not interested in whispers on the internet. Like, like if, if, if in the case studies that seems to be highly effective and helpful, I'm going to take it. And I have zero fear that I'm taking the mark of the beast. Zero. Zero. If you say the vaccine is the mark of the beast, I honestly have lost respect for your ability to think about things in a genuinely spiritual way. And I know I've hurt people by saying that. But I think that it's so crazy you need to be, like, woken up to stop saying that stuff, if that's you. I've lived long enough to know that the mark of the beast was barcodes on everything you purchase, right? You buy something... Here's a passion translation, which may be the marketplace. No, it's not. It's not. Nothing you're looking at is, right? There's a barcode. They said these, oh, the first one is six and the middle one is a six and the third one is a six. It's six, six, six. I remember that. Do you guys remember that? I'm old enough to remember that. I was a little bit young when I heard it, but I heard it. And uh, then then we were told that the mark of the beast was money itself. Money is the mark of the beast because your cash itself has got these like these like symbols. Have you looked at the symbols? Do you know there's like an there's like a there's like a thing on it. There's like a there's like a just it, you have it's the mark of the beast. And then you have credit cards of the mark of the beast, which I'm not going to show you my credit card. That would be really foolish to do. <laughs> but credit cards are the mark of the beast, and you you can't buy or sell without them. And then it's like okay, but then they're going to chip people, and that'll be the mark of the beast. Look. Even if you're a futurist and you believe there is a mark of the beast coming, as I do, at least right now, this is my current understanding of of scripture. It's not anything that just happens to come out and everybody's doing like mark of the beast has to do with worshiping the beast and his image. Worship, you know, you're not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. Like I was a Christian. I trusted in Jesus. I loved him with all my life. I thought this vaccine would help me, but I took it and now I'm going to hell. I don't know who did that to you, but you shouldn't listen to them anymore. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. So forgive me if I've offended anybody. um, You needed it. I'm sorry. You needed it, right? Like medically, even if I'm wrong and the vaccine is somehow harmful or damaging, it's still not the mark of the beast. Let me speak now as a pastor, as a Bible teacher, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast, That's all I got to say. (laughs) All right, you guys, Lord bless you. Thank you so much for joining me. I do hope you'll consider my opinions and think about these things. I'm not the final word. I'm just a counselor, a teacher in the body of Christ who hopefully is bringing good content Stay tuned, because I hope Monday, dropping in the interview with Trimper Longman. Like I said, he's like the guy on the Song of Songs. He's written this great academic commentary on it. He translated it for the New Living Translation. He's worked on the NIV and other Bible translations as well. And even the message, which is not a favorite of mine. <laughs> um, but he even says the Passion is not even a translation. It's not even a translation. And you sh- you'll see. He says, Simmons claims are outrageous and misleading. And I was very happy to have him. Because I don't filter what they say. I didn't control them. I just want these scholars to talk and then you'll know. All right, y'all, have a great day. God bless you.